Hi, I'm Chris Akabusi, British athlete, three-time Olympic medalist, world champion, European champion, Commonwealth champion, British record holder for the 400 meter hurdles. I want to welcome you to Rise Above the Burn. What is it that makes world-class athletes and Olympians so good at what they do? Join us as we deep dive and learn what it takes to be the best. That's what Rising Above the Burn is all about. Here's your host, Lou Dondero. We all know what it feels like to train or compete through pain. Those knots, muscle soreness, cramps, loss of movement and flexibility. Speed up your recovery with the Star Wrap. Engineered to provide hands-free deep tissue massage and reduce muscle pain and soreness. That's the Star Wrap. Do you want to take your athletic performance to the next level? Connect with Chris Gorez at trainergorez.com. Chris mentors and trains NFL, Major League Baseball, and professional soccer players. Get professional advice and step up your performance. Thank you for joining us as we have a great show for you. And I am fired up to introduce Chris Akabusi. Chris, thank you so much for talking with us. Hey, Lou, I'm really looking forward to the next half hour. Uh, It's going to be great. Chris represented Great Britain in the 1984, the 1988, and the 1992 Summer Olympic Games, earning both silver and bronze medals. His events in track and field included the 400 meters, the 4 by 400 relay, and the 400 meter hurdles. Chris also holds a world championship in the 4 by 400 relay, beating out the American team in 1991 for the gold. Chris is now a mentor, motivational speaker, and often appears as a guest host on many British TV programs catering to sports and athletics. He joins us today to share his amazing accomplishments, his challenges, and how he's able to push his mind and body past the burn and into greatness. Chris, I've given our fans just a glimpse of your amazing accomplishments. Can you take a minute, tell us a little about you, and maybe share the benefits of growing up as an athlete? Sure, Lou. Uh, thanks very much for that fine introduction. In, in life, I started off. So I just need to say that uh, my mother and father were Nigerians who came to the UK in the 1950s. I was born and bred in England. But um, some of you listening may remember that um, in the late 60s, there was um, a civil war in Nigeria. And so my parents had gone back to Nigeria to help the community benefit from their education, left me and my brother in the UK. The money that, was, that they were sending to take care of us stopped coming, and so I ended up in care. So the vast majority of my childhood, from my fourth year till 16, I was living in, in, in care. But the great news for me was I left care at six and a half, I joined the army, and that's where I was to meet my sports mentor, a guy called Sergeant McKenzie. And Sergeant McKenzie um, saw some potential in me when I was getting fit, you know, getting ready for military training. I was getting fit. He was an athletics officer. He saw some potential in me, and he started me on the roads to track and field athletics. And I'm so grateful for him. And um, he engaged me. He got me into training. And five years later, from seeing Sergeant McKenzie, from joining the Army, five years later, I was standing on the rostrum in the Olympic Games 
in Los Angeles in 1984. It was a massive transformation. Even now, I mean, it was 30 years ago. Even now, I have to pinch myself at times to realize, yes, that was you, Chris Akabusi. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. You mentioned transition that you had to make. Could you Can you share some light on that? One of the things I'm always keen on talking about is that our past is for reference, not for residence. It's so easy to uh, to live in your past. It's so easy to let the past grab hold of you, hold you down, keep you back. And yet, there's some clues in your past for your future. So I like to talk about taking some of the best bits out of your past. So here I was as a kid in the children's home. I was joining the army. The great thing about being in the children's home is that you get used to meeting people from all sorts of walks, lives, colors, creeds, orientation. You're used to diversity. And so when I joined the army, I was tailor-made for an environment that was going to introduce me to diversity. And also another thing that I've been used to doing as a young person was standing on my own two feet. You know, I'm in a home, the 20 other kids, sometimes you've got to fight for what you want. Uh, there's only a few carers looking after you. So I was used to standing on my own two feet, uh, being responsible for myself. I met Scott McKenzie and the skills of of diversity and standing in my own two feet actually were a great segue to, for me joining the army. And so when I met Sarah McKenzie, I was ready made to get on with the next part of my transition. So first and foremost, you've got to let go of the past if you want to move forward. So here I was, I met Sarah McKenzie, I was able to let go of my past. And then what you need to be able to do is to marshal all of the common gifts waiting to be exploited by you. I really believe that all of us at every single epoch in our life have a new set of gifts ready to be explored. And right there, right then, Sam McKenzie was able to help me to unearth these gifts waiting to explore. I am just inspired already and we're only five minutes into the show. So I cannot wait. Dig more into your mind, Chris, and find out some of these ways to exploit these gifts. We like to start the show off with a funny or maybe even embarrassing moment that you or your team experienced while training and competing. Is there a particular moment in time that you remember that was very amusing that you could share with us? I remember a time when I was at the Olympic Games. I was with my friends, Todd Bennett, Gary Cook, Phil Brown. We'd just come second behind America in the uh, 4x4 relay. We're all really, really young guys, you know. We're in our early 20s. I mean, I was the oldest, I was 24. These guys are all sort of like uh, 22. And we were standing in the rostrum and we were sort of like saying, can you believe it? Can you believe it? We're Olympic silver medalists. And then one of the guys, Gary Cook, decided to pull the shorts down of Todd Bennett and Phil Pulver. <laughs> so here we are. We're in the Olympic Stadium. There are 90,000 uh -huh. people in the stadium. There are multiplied millions across the globe. And <laughs> We've got our pants down. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you know what guys are like. You know, we were young guys having some fun and stuff. I mean, in the end, I mean, we didn't reveal the family jewels, so that, that was safe to say we were okay there. But it was so funny. <laughs> I love those stories, and and uh, yeah, we did do that to each other um, in college on training trips, and there were some embarrassing moments where someone would do it to another athlete in a restaurant. But uh, I couldn't imagine in front of ninety thousand people. That is great, Chris. <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, what was the most exciting thing other than your teammate pulling down your other teammate's pants? What was the most exciting thing about being an Olympic athlete? Wow. You know, Lou, there were different stages to being an Olympic athlete. I am very grateful for the fact that I managed to go to three different type Olympic Games. Now, the very first time you go to Olympic Games, you are starry-eyed. It is unbelievable. It's unbelievable to be to be sharing the track, the training track. To, and back in the day, Carl Lewis. Don't get bigger than Carl Lewis. Right. Edwin Moses, Daley Thompson. I mean, these are massive, massive names. And here was little old me on the track the same training track. It was just incredible to be able to warm up alongside and, and to see the guys doing the repetition. And it was just, so So the very first games, the most exciting thing is the reality. And at halftime, you can't even really believe it, that you are alongside these mega stars. These guys you've just seen on TV. It is just mind blowing. Towards the end, so my last games, the most exciting thing was coming to get the job done, to be in that sort of frame of mind, to know that you are the top percent of athletes in the world that should make the final if you deliver your best. And that's an awesome feeling. Of course, as an athlete, you know, well, most athletes are pretty understated. So, you know, you, you don't boast and shout, but you know inside of yourself, you walk into the room and you know that all the eyes of the people in your event, they're on you. That you are one of the top guys in the world and yeah. they've got to beat you to try to make the final. And that's an awesome responsibility, a phenomenal feeling. Did the nerves ever get in the way while you were competing, say in your first Olympics and you're starry eyed, you're seeing Carl Lewis and Edwin Moses right there next to you. Did that distract you or how did you turn out the noise and stay concentrated? i tell you what, Lou, I was really fortunate. I think, I think my, one of my major talents was being able to pull it together when it really, really mattered. All of my personal bests always happened in major championships. And basically, what I found is that when I came to the major games, first and foremost, I was petrified. Inside of myself, there was these nerves. You got these um, the realization it's do or die. There is no try. It's, it's a This is a one-off. It's never going to happen again in this moment. Uh, you don't know where you're going to be in four years' time. But that fear, that realization, that pressure, rather than make me fall apart, actually made me come together. Now, I remember the way it goes in Olympic Games, you, you, you go into this, once you've done your warm up, you go into this holding area. And when you go into the holding area, now I'm assuming you're in the final, of course. Yep. When, you're in the, when you're in the holding area, the best eight guys in the world are there. And you, you know, you, you've all got your own little rituals. And you, you go through the, for me, you go through the num look at your number, look at your spikes, look at your gear, look at my, for me, you've got the, the, the Union Jack. You've got all of that hustle and bustle and all that regulation and process and procedure. And it's all very, very precise and unique to the games. And then you go from there into the call room and you go through into this tunnel. Now, when you go into the tunnel, there's an eerie silence. Hmm. You've gone from the hustle and bustle of the of the process arena into this. It's almost like I would imagine walking to the firing squad. <laughs> to your firing. It's honestly, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's eerie because you've got, you've got these eight Trojans, these eight athletes, these eight competitors ready to do battle. And then you walk through this very silent tunnel and then all of a sudden at this burst 
of noise, of light, of aura, just amplifies around the arena. As you walk into the arena, oh my gosh, Lou. Then all of a sudden I'd realize, you know, I'd get the taste of iron filings in my throat and lump in my throat and I'd get butterflies in my stomach. And they wouldn't settle until I got into the starting blocks. But once I got into the starting blocks, my, my click word was Geronimo. And Geronimo meant do or die, there is no try. And I don't know why, as soon as I got into that moment, I would just resign myself to the fact that when that gun goes, you're gonna fly those blocks and it would be like pouring water out of a jug. It all just happened. And I can't take any credit. You know, I was prepared, I trained and everything, but it all just happened. And I always rose to my best. I felt a million dollars. I just grew 10 foot tall. I just, just to chew up the, the track. And I just feel magnificent. The best I've ever felt in my life. Wow. That is the most descriptive I've ever heard what it's like to walk out there into the Olympics and, and right before your race. Geronimo, do or die, there is no try. I love that. That is that is awesome. I'm going to adopt that, Chris. Hey, where you going, Lou? Where you going, big guy? <laughs> what did you love most about racing? Tell us what that experience is like in the blocks and you're racing. You're either ahead and people are chasing you down or you're behind trying to get to the finish line. What's that experience like, especially a stadium of 90,000 people? I'll tell you what, Lou, nothing else in life has got anywhere near to replicating the dynamism, the sense of urgency and alertness that being in a full arena, arena representing your country going to your blocks. It's just a phenomenal feeling. There are much more important things in the world. But you know what? When you're there, it doesn't feel like it. Right. It feels like this is the most important thing in the world. It feels like me. What I, what I found as I went through the echelon is that every time I would, like, so for, for example, to start off with, I was a soldier. I represented the army. Then I represented the combined services. Then I represented... Uh, the United Kingdom. But by the time I got to the Olympics in, in, in um, 1992, I was representing Europe. In my mind, I was an intercontinental athlete representing the best on Europe against the best in Africa, the best in America, the best in Australasia, the best the athletes in the world. And you know what? I love that responsibility. And it was just incredible to go down there it's amazing the way the body blocks out all of the other noises. So having gone into that arena, having had all of the hairs on the back of my head standing up on end, having the body tingling, feeling that nervous stomach turning and churning, having that sort of taste of metal in your mouth, having gone from that into the Geronimo position, it is amazing how silent the world goes. It is absolutely peekaboo silent. And boom! All of a sudden, the gun goes, and there's this a maze of drama and activity and energy, and you sit through every sinew in your body. It just bursts open, and a great big first stride, and you go toward the and bam! You're into the race, and you're down the, the, the first curve, and you're into the home straight, back straight. And when you're in the back straight, all of a sudden, you're getting into a rhythm, and so you begin to stand tall, and you feel yourself, you feel the rhythm, and then you can 
Not so much hear the crowd, has to feel the crowd. You feel the noise enveloping you, and then you've got your change down, and you're into the second curve, and then you've got to keep yourself all the tidy, up into the home straight, and then in the home straight, when your body is screaming for air, your lungs is, are bursting, your heart is pounding, your legs are now wobbling because you've got all of this lactic acid, and your program is rise above the burn. In that last 100 meters, you've got this burn of lactic acid and now you've got to that's when you've got to rely on your training and on your rhythm you stand tall click clop over the 10th hurdle and then before you know it you are stretching your neck and you're dipping towards the line you're spent you're giving up everything and hopefully just hopefully if you've done it right click clock You've got the big G, boys. you got the big G. Yeah. Chris, I feel like I was actually running that race with you right there. Thank you, Lou. Thank wow. You. Thank that you. was incredible. Uh, it's, inc- it's, it's an incredible feeling, buddy. Incredible. I, you shared it very, very well. I was captivated. Can you take us back to a time in your life where you were challenged or faced adversity and tell us how you were able to rise above the burn? Uh, so are you talking about in a sporting context, Lou? Just in life context, because, you know, rise above the burn, it's both a life and sport metaphor. You know, you're lifting weights, you're running down, you're feeling that burn, you got to push, or you're feeling adversity in your life, and you've just got to be able to hunker down and make it through. Is there a time in your life that you would like to share with us that you felt like you had to rise above the burn and you succeeded? You know what, Lou? There's a great book by a woman called Judith Voiced, V-I-O-R-S-T. And that mm-hmm. book is entitled Necessary Losses. And basically it talks about in life, life is a series of letting go, a series of losses. You know, when you're born, you you, you, you have to let go of your mother's womb and you, you know, every single epoch you go to school, you let go of your mother's apron and then you leave school and you've got to let go of school and go into work, etc. So there are loads of transitions in my life where I've had to really dare to be me, dare to, dare to get into the next epoch. And it's a very scary place. It's called liminality. Liminality is a place where you, you, know, you let go of where you've been, all your certainty, your comfort zone, that sort of security blanket, and you've got to let go and be in that uncertain, ambiguous state. And I mean, I could pick any amount of times and where I've stood there and I've got to really retrain and I've got to let go of who I think I am. And and so many times in life you can hold on to who you think you are. And I guess one of the biggest transitions was leaving the world of track and field athletics. Yeah. You know, you know here I was, I'm 34 years of age, I've had 15 years in track and athletics, 10 years as international, five years as world class. I define myself as an athlete. Yeah. You know, I read athletic magazines. Everyone I know is, is in athletics. In, in my country, United Kingdom, I've got a profile. That's Chris Akabusi. He's an athlete. So all of a sudden, when you finish your athletic career, it's not just any career. You're leaving behind your identity. You're leaving behind everything that speaks about your being, about, about how you, your sustenance in life. And yet you have to do it. And you have to let go. Now, initially, I will admit, I was so scared of the void that I was going to move into that I just lived like a headless chicken. Any sort Mm -hmm. of opportunity, TV opportunity, work opportunity, I just worked, 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 worked. 16 hours, 18 hours a day, because I didn't want to agree 
that my career was over. Right. But then what happened, I was very, very fortunate. You may have picked up, I'm a little bit excitable. And um, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and in the UK, I got spotted by the TV people. And so before I knew it, I was being asked to do this show and that show. I then got myself a little position presenting a TV show over here called Record Breakers. And I found myself forging into my whole new career. But I must admit, the idea of letting go was really, really scary. But you've got to let go in order to be able to hold on. You can't let go and hold on at the same time. You've got to let go of one thing so you can hold on to the next epoch in your history. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Chris. That uh, that reminds me a lot of, of myself and some other athletes I know of transitioning out of college. They've been in swimming for 15, 20 years their whole life. They're known as a swimmer and or a diver or a gymnast or a football player. And once college is over, it's either you go to the pros or you start working. And then all of a sudden, not only are you out of school, you got to transition into work and no longer you're an athlete anymore. So I, I can really relate to that, not on a world scale, but on that loss because you are fostering a loss of an aspect in your life. If one door closes, that means other doors are going to open up. And as soon as you can let go of that door, like you said, other opportunities will blossom. And it, it did that for you. And that's, that's an amazing story of yours. And Lou, Lou, you're smack on that whether you are a world-class athlete or leaving college or high school, it's just, it's, it's exactly the same. That transition mm-hmm. is exactly the same. We all go through the same period of loss and, and we've all got to let go. And what, what can happen is some people don't let go. There's nothing worse for me than seeing the old athlete that won't let go. And you're the once world-class champion that's getting battered and bruised in lower divisions because he, she cannot let go of their former glory. And there's always some right. excuse you got to let go in order to be able to take up, move, move on. Yes, absolutely. It is. It is very sad to see. And you can see that in many sports, not to name any names, but you just got to, you got to know when your time is up and then go yeah. and then be successful at something else. Absolutely. It's hard to let go though. It's very hard to let go, Lou, because it's a glorious life. You know, sport is beautiful. It's almost like a death, death of you or a death of a part of you that you have to experience. Yeah, look, look, but that's look, part of growing. Yeah, look, it's, not, it's not even almost, it is a death. It's most yes. definitely a death. Most definitely the right word. You telling that brings back so many emotions. I'm sure all the athletes listening to this too are nodding their heads right there. Um, I want to go back into sports. You know, we all have breakthrough moments in life. Can you tell us about your moment when you felt like you finally arrived? Yeah, most definitely, Lou. It was um, 1989, and there was a competition, or there is a competition in Europe called the European Cup. And I just transitioned in the last three years to the Fornabit Hurdles. And the um, biggest player in Europe was a guy called Howard Smith. And Howard Smith was second in the world only to one Mr. Edwin Moses. And Edwin mm-hmm. Moses and Howard Smith had had a phenomenal ding-dong battle for two or three years. And here I was, I was third year into the event. I was number one in the UK. It was a Europa Cup where the major players in Europe compete one against another and you get points for your country. And I was up against Howard Smith. And I remember I was in great shape. I've been training and of course, but I really respected Howard Smith, really respected him. And although I went in there wanting to compete and beat him, deep inside of me, I knew this is Howard Smith. 
and that I would have to be 100% and some on top of my game. And he would need to have a few shavers of his, of his for me to beat him. I went into that games and the, the whole of the country was on my shoulders. That's what it felt like. Right. You know, it's, this is me, Chris Akabusi, and I felt like the whole of the country was on my shoulders. And I didn't want to let my friends down, my family down, the team down, the country down. I was the very first race that day that was against, so the, I was the very first track race that day. And I remember getting to my blocks. I was in lane four or five. Hal Smith was ahead of me. And I went through the whole story that I've already told you about how I prepare. Yep. And I just absolutely ripped out of those blocks. It was incredible. I was on his shoulder, hurdle three, hurdle five. And then as I changed down, because there's a stride pattern in the hurdles, I changed down from 13 strides, which is equal foot, to 14 strides, which means you lead with your left and lead with my right. And as I changed down, I burst past Howard Smith. And I got into the home straight. I was ahead of him. I, I just remember thinking, which is a bit naughty, because you're not supposed to be thinking, you're supposed to be actually doing. But I remember <laughs> right. thinking... Oh my gosh, you were ahead of Howard Smith. How I strained towards the line, I don't know. But I remember when I crossed that line, all of a sudden, in that moment, I went from representing the United Kingdom to representing Europe, and I had arrived. And where was that the competition held? That, that, that competition was at Gateshead, which is in the northeast of England, near, near a place called Newcastle. Um, mm -hmm. So it was in Gateshead. We had the home crowd with us, and all the sportsmen listening will know there's something called social facilitation. And what that is, is the lift that you get when you've got a home crowd. You know yes. that most of us compete better when we've got a home crowd, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so here I was in the UK, and I know that the home crowd gave me that lift. I could, you know, I'd say to everyone, sometimes you, you don't, you don't hear stuff, you feel stuff. And I could feel the, the love and the desire and the commitment of the crowd willing me across the line on that day. And I went mm -hmm. from representing the United Kingdom to representing Europe. And for the next four years, I represented Europe at World Championships and Olympic Games. And it was a real serious task that I took on board of myself. What was your conversation? Did you have a conversation with Howard Schmidt after the race? Athletes are... Um, I think a gentleman first and foremost. So, so right. very much so, I went up to Howard Smith and I, I clasped his hand and he looked me in the eye and he just said, Ich congratuliere. And that's German for, I congratulate you. Um, ich congratuliere. He looked me straight in my eye. Ich congratuliere. And I looked in his eye he come, and I said, thank you, Harold. I, I might be, a little, I probably am a little bit of a romantic, but I felt at that moment that Harold was saying, the king is dead, long live the king. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. I looked at him, he looked at me, he congratulated her, and, and he's got dark eyes, he's got real dark eyes, and he just stared me in the eye, and he told me he congratulated me, and I knew there was a parson in the mantle right there, right there. Now, I'm no way am I actually putting myself at the level of Howard Smith. Howard Smith was a monster. He was absolutely phenomenal. But I yep. had to take his mantle and carry that mantle over the next four or five years. Passing that torch over to you, Howard Smith passing that torch over to you and you carrying it. Now, was there someone that you felt like you passed on that torch? Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. I handed a baton over to a guy called Stefana Diagana. He was a French man. He was a beautiful man. He he ran very, very differently. A young man. He was, ten young, he was 10 years younger than me. And again, it was at the European Cup. 
I shouldn't have run the race, but I did. And Stefana Diagana, he easily beat me. He looked up to me and I said, Stefana, it is yours now. And Stefana <laughs> went on and, 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 and represented Europe for the next um, half dozen years. But it's great. It is great. And that's a great thing about uh, athletics is that there was a very concrete line, a definitive line. It's not subjective. It's very objective. And you know when you're dead. You know mm-hmm. when you're dead. You know when you're done. And I was done. I looked at Stefana and I knew there was a new king. It was great. Thank you for sharing that with us. What was uh, you know, a story about your favorite competition? Was there a, a particular event that just stands out in your mind as your favorite? Oh, Ludus 2. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. This is all right. What are your two favorite Thank competitions you that you remember? <laughs> Bless you, Lou. Bless you. <laughs> uh, the first one, look, athletics, first and foremost, is about individual performance. It's about stretching your boundaries. It's about finding how far you can go. It's about really laying your life on the line. It's about waking up every single day and asking yourself, have I done my best effort today? Have I left any stone unturned? It's about going into the big championships and stepping up to that mark and leaving it all in the arena. And I mm-hmm. did that in 1990. I went to the European Championship in 1990. And up until that date, I had not won a major European, a major championship outside of sort of national level. And I went to that day, I was in cracking shape again. All my training indicated that I could run very well. I've got to tell you, Lou, I've got to tell you, in the first round, I, got, I flew out the blocks again. I was going down the back straight and I was chewing up the ground. And honestly, you know what? You've heard these words, time stands still. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Everything around me was so slow and so large and so easy. And I was pouring over these these hurdles. And honestly, Lou, it was so easy. And then I, before I knew it, I was crossing the line and I turned around and it said 48 and a half seconds. And I was jogging. It was just so easy. And I went, it was just so easy. And I went for the next two rounds. I, and then, and then I, got, I got to the semi-final, I went 48, 48 low. And anyway, in the final, I knew I was in great shape. I went out and all I can tell you is I ran the race of my life, went under 48 seconds, and I smashed the British record. Now the British record has stood for 22 years. And I was just so grateful. The guy who put, it was an Olympic record when David Henry held that. And that for me, is for me my own most significant race of my life because I won the European Championships. I broke David Henry's 22 year British record, a record I still hold today, by the way, 24 years later. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 and so for me, that's my most significant race. But, 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 if you speak to anyone in the United Kingdom, there is something special about being able to share an event with other people. In 1991, the United Kingdom went to Tokyo to take on the very best team in the world, the United States of America. Uh The mile relay is America's blue ribbon event. Up and down the high school, up and down NC2A colleges, the Americans love the relay. And the Americans have been undefeated for so many years. But in this occasion, we had a little team that, that, that when you could could tackle the big boys. But we did something unique, a very small change that made a massive difference. We put our, we put our very best quarter miler, Roger Black, 
on the first leg. And Roger had come second to Antonio Pettigrew, who'd just been crowned a world champion for the individual 400. We put Roger on the first leg. We put Dane Redmond on the second leg. And anybody listening who's a connoisseur of athletics, they might remember in the Olympic Games the picture of the British guy who pulls his hamstring while he's running in the Olympic Games in a 400-meter flat, and his father yeah. comes on the crack. Can you remember that story? That was the story and image I used when I first launched Rise Above the Burn on the social networks. I put it on Twitter, Facebook, my webpage of that gentleman with his father, because that's the of rising above the burn. He finished the line. He went, he finished the finish line with that pulled hamstring with his father. And the whole world stopped at that moment to watch him do that. Yeah, it's an awesome, awesome, awesome story. And you know what? I think that story says so much about all the people that support athletes. You know, so much of us, we, we watch athletics, we watch our football and our basketball, and we see these amazing sportsmen. But you know what? Every single one of those sportsmen have got somebody in their life that helps them get across the line. On that occasion, we saw dad come and help his boy who was maimed get across that line. But metaphorically, we all know our coaches and our parents and our training partners that help us get across the line. Yes. Um, so well, Derek was part of my team. He was part and parcel of the team. So Derek won the second leg. Wow. He was the only other quarter mile on our team. We had a guy called John Regis, a 200 meter runner. He ran the third leg and I ran the fourth leg. And we put this team together and we really rose against uh, above the burn in, in that race. You know, we shouldn't have beaten the Americans. I've got to say, with all due respect, you know, the, the US were a little bit complacent. You know, the best guy in the world was a guy called, um, was a guy called um, Michael Johnson. He wasn't at the games because he, he, he you know, they, let, they dropped him. They didn't put him in their team. They had right. a world champion, though. And, you know, for, for, for me, for Rog, for Derek, for John, I mean, that is a highlight of our athletic career. You know, it, it put us on a map in the UK. It's always, always, always voted one of the top moments in, in British sporting history. You know, when they have 21 years, 50 years, 100 years, bam, the British team took on the mighty Americans because it was just so unexpected, so unusual. And we had taken it into our own hands. We changed the running order and we executed it. We executed the strategy. Uh, it was just a brilliant, brilliant moment. And we shared that moment together and we're still close friends, you know, and it, again, my gosh, you know, it's 30 odd years ago that is, but we're still close friends and we will be to our dying day. Yeah. And, and that's what sport does for you. It knits people together. Yes, it does. It puts you together and you have this experience together that is emotionally charged, physically charged, mentally charged, and you actually have a bond that can't be broken forever after that. Correct, correct, Lou, correct. And, you, and, and we, you know, we're all so, we were all so different. The guys that I'm talking about, you know, we got Roger Black's a middle-class boy, you know, a middle-class European good-looking boy and he's, he's up there with his working-class hungry African boy but it, it, it didn't matter the, the diversity one side we come together we're one phenomenal team and, and that's the beauty you know it just shows you you know when you look at your strengths I, I like to say similarities make you champions and differences make us unique and we had our differences our unique contribution but our similarities our dedication our commitment our tenacity our dying for the cause is what made us champions and it was brilliant and it is brilliant and we are so close uh, you know even to this day 
That's a great quote. And that, that is great. Maybe I can get all four of you guys on the show at once to talk about that race. Oh, no, no, Lou, that'll be brilliant, mate. That'll be fantastic. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. It'll be walkers. It'll be walkers. Uh, well, Chris, this is going to take us to the next part of the show. It's gone 14 minutes to greatness. This is where we're going to dive deep into your mind and extract a few tips that could help a listener or athlete ignite their inspiration, pop open their passion, and release their greatness. But first, let's thank our sponsor. Designed by athletic trainer and massage therapist, Tate Yoder. The Star Rep allows you to take your massage with you and does not add any time to your existing routine. Perfect for athletes looking to improve performance and active adults looking to feel better and eliminate pain. Go to thestarrap.com and email Tate for your Rise Above the Burn discount. A percentage of every purchase will be contributed to an Olympic hopeful on the Star Rap team. A performance training program is designed to help your body simply move better. For athletes, this means moving with more stability, mobility, strength, and power. Contact Chris at trainergorez.com for an evaluation and a custom performance-based workout that'll help you achieve your desired results by working smarter, not harder. Go to trainergorez.com, that's G-O-R-R-E-S, for a customized performance program. Email Chris for your Rise Above the Burn discount. Are you ready? I'm ready to roll, buddy. All right. What are some things athletes do that self-sabotage their training or competition? I'll tell you what, the amount of people, the amount of talented athletes that I've seen who come down to the track and don't prepare properly, don't warm up properly, and they end up popping hamstrings. The amount of athletes that I've seen who like to train, but don't like to compete because they're scared of being beaten. I'll tell you what, world-class athletes are those athletes who embrace the fear of defeat in order to experience the joy of winning. You see, wow. it's really important, Lou, for every athlete at high school and junior college to know this. Unless you're prepared to lose, you'll never, ever win. I've met so many athletes that were so happy and so enamored with winning that they would never, ever put themselves in an environment where they would lose. So they'll only mm-hmm. compete at, if you're in the States, you just want to stay, you just want to stay in your state and you never go across the border. Right. But in order to, you've got to extend yourself. And the same is in training. You know, the athlete that does the training and then bottles out of the fifth or sixth repetition because it hurts and they never get past the fifth or fourth repetition. But to be world-class, you've got to really push yourself beyond the burn on rep five and six. And even when you fall apart at the end, you've got to get up and you've got to do it again. Get up and do it again. And then eventually what you find is that you master the fifth and sixth rep and you go on to another level. And yep. so many athletes I've known who, who who pull back just before the burn and they never, ever realize their, their true potential because they're always trained within themselves. Great answer. Great advice there, Chris. What was the last thing you saw another athlete do that really impressed you? I was always, always, always impressed by Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. Balls. And the reason I was impressed with him was that the superstar as he was in the last 20 seconds, he wanted the ball. Mm-hmm. I see him get the ball under pressure. I see him twist and turn. I see him fade away, shoot the jumper, nothing but net. I see him twist and turn, skyhook off the glass, 
Nothing but net. I see him miss plenty of times too. But it didn't matter how many times he missed, I saw him twist and turn, pop inside, alley-oop, nothing but net. And it just would tell me that it doesn't matter how good or bad your day's going. When it matters, step up and just go for it. So I guess, yes. you know, I mean, I was always impressed with, with watching Jordan. I was always impressed with Danny Thompson. I, was, I, I, I saw Danny Thompson training when I was in America. And Danny Thompson was the best in the world. He never, he never, he never bottled it in training. He's always stepped up in training. There are three things you need to be the best in the world. You need to have natural talent. You need to train hard. You need to be able to compete under pressure. And I meet many athletes who haven't got the talent, train hard, can compete under pressure, not good enough. But, but, but basically, you need to be able to train hard, compete under pressure, and have the talent. And unfortunately, sometimes, most athletes don't have one out of those three. I saw Danny Thompson. He had all three. He could train hard, had loads of talent, and could compete under pressure. I was always impressed with that. That is quite unique that you said that. I was actually had a, I was talking with another athlete on a earlier show, and I said there's three different types of athletes. You, got, you have the athlete with all heart, but very little talent. You have the athlete with all the talent in the world, but no heart. Then you have the athlete with all talent and all heart, and that's the one that makes it through, but they're so rare. And it's so frustrating when you see an athlete with so much talent and they just don't care. Yep. They just, they don't have any care. They're lazy or they're lackadaisical or they just don't have any drive in them. And then you see the guy that's like pushing his body so hard that it looks like it hurts. Mm And he just he just can't get past or over that next stage because he lacks the physical muscle makeup yeah. to be there. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, 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 absolutely. But but as I said to, to those two things though, you know, you can have the heart, you know, you can train really hard, but some guys just can't compete under pressure. I mean, yeah. because, because you see, with me personally, me personally, I know I had the heart, and I know I could, I could compete under pressure. I think the reason that I wasn't world, world class, I mean, top, top, I mean, the reason I'm not Edwin Moses, Dave Thompson, Carl Lewis, is because I just didn't have the talent. And, and it's all relative. I'm, you know, I'm not denigrating myself. I'm really pleased with what I achieved. But when it came to it, I didn't have the talent. And it's, it's, it's very rare to meet the guy with the talent, the guy with the heart, and the guy with the, the mental capacity to compete under pressure. You know, it's it's it's, it's, oh, it's just such a rare, rare jewel. And when you see it, it's just poetry emotion. Chris, you have this book called Success Comes in Cans. That's a great title. Can you tell us about it? What does the title mean? And how that can inspire another athlete? Yeah, um, so Success Comes in Cans is obviously a play in words because it sounds like it's talking about comes in cans, food cans, but actually what I'm saying is success comes in cans, not cannots. You know, you've, you've, you've got to say, think that you can, know that you can. You've got to say yes more than say no. You've got to believe in your innate ability. You've got to maximize your strengths. It's a book that talks about letting go of the past, asking yourself the question, what is the best use of my time now? It's about collaboration. It's about all of us know more than any one of us. So make sure you've got the right people on your side, in your team, that's supporting you in your direction. And the thing is about sports, I've got to be honest, sports is very myopic. Sports is very self-centered. You do become the center of the universe. But, but you know, but you, you do recognize that you step in the arena on your own 
but you cannot do it alone. You need people around you to make you happen. And so it's about that. It's about getting the right team around you, acknowledging your team. When you when you drink the water, remember who dug the well. So, you know, make it sure you, you know what I'm saying? Make sure you share, you share your success and you appreciate those people who've helped you along the way. Basically, my, the book, it's my life story and the lessons that I've learned. I, I define life as the life you lead, the lessons you learn and the legacy you leave. And so my book, Success Comes in Cans, it's full of anecdotes and stories of me as a child, me as a soldier, me as a, a, an athlete, and the people that came along the way that helped me make me happen. And hopefully there's some pithy sayings that will stick in, stick, stick in, your, in, in the language when you pick it, pick it up and read it. Well, we will have that book listed on riseaboveTheBurn.com underneath Chris's profile. So check it out. And uh want to ask you, can you tell us about the Akabusi company and the motivational speaking you provide? Yeah, Lou. Uh, thanks very much for that. So, I mean, I've been speaking professionally now for 20 odd years and uh, it's a real passion of mine. I like to be inspiring, engaging, entertaining. I do a lot in the business community, really, so I do a lot of speaking for business. But my real passion at the moment, and what the Akabusi company is focusing on at the moment, is the transition of young adults between 16 and 24 years of age from education into employment. It's more complex now than it's ever been. Yep. We live in a global community. The millennium people are on the, on the rise. They are so very different from my generation, the baby boomer generation. They're values driven. They are used to diversity. They're used to the global village. And yet they got so much to offer. Yeah. They were born in the digital age. And so I want to support those people, that age group, that demographic, getting into the workplace and helping them understand the language of the people that are currently in roles of responsibility in the workplace. You know, the generation X's and, and, and the, the boomer generation and to understand their work ethic. And so I support young people who maybe like me, left school with um, limited education. Um, I was very fortunate to meet Sergeant McKenzie. I spoke about him at the beginning of the podcast. Um, Sergeant McKenzie was a very important figure, mentor figure in my life. And right now, my speaking and my training programs and my facilitation programs, my workshops are really geared to supporting uh, young people make that transition and business owners being responsible employers ensuring the transition of young people through the workplace. Wow, this is like an incredible service that you're doing and it's going to be very appreciative that you're, you're kind of getting on that and helping these kids tra transition into the workplace because it can be scary and it can be hard. So what you're doing is fantastic and we'll have uh, the Akabusi company's links and contact information if you want to get involved either on the other side of the pond and uh, Chris's- uh, Come on down. Yeah, Chris's area or you know maybe Chris will be expanding over to the States too. That'd be great, Luke. Chris, this to our bonus question. You are granted the ability to go back in time to one chapter of your life and you get to spend five days with your younger self. The only requirement has to be a time when you're either training or competing. Drawing off your current knowledge and experiences, what chapter in your life would you go back to? What would you advise young Chris? Where would you take him and what would you do for him? Again, I, I've been very fortunate that I've had some good people come into my life, but it was a real struggle for me to give up football. So I was um, 
19, 20 years of age, 20 years of age. Yeah. I've been training for a couple of years. Uh, my coaches recognized I had some talent. I was now living in Germany. I was a soldier in Germany. But I love sport. And my athletics was something I, I only trained three, four days a week um, for athletics. And I wanted to play football and I wanted to play basketball. But my coach on a Monday, I'll turn up on a Monday with some sort of knock or, or niggle. And my coach would say to me, Chris, you've got so much athletic talent and you can't train properly on a Monday. And so if, if I was to go back now, I'd, I'd go back to young Chris and say, Chris, I know it's a real tough decision to have to give up basketball and to give up football. I know it's a tough decision, but you can't do it all. And Chris, you've got so much ability and so much talent that if you, if you channel that like a laser-like focus, you will be blessed to represent your country and go to Olympic Games and World Championships. If you don't, you're going to miss out on the greatest epoch in your life. I think I'll tell him that and really encourage him that he's made the right decision. Because I had, you know, honestly, I was so... I, I really love playing football. Yeah. I, I'm, not talking about, I'm talking about soccer. I really love playing football. And it was a real wrench for me not to play football. And I was really down in the dumps for a while when I stopped playing football. Um, but it paid off. And so I think, you know, to all young people, there does come a time when you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision for one thing or another. And I suspect that there are a lot of people in America, for example, who could have been great athletes who played American football instead, or could have been great basketball players who played baseball instead. Right. Uh, you know, but, but but they try to do everything and they try to do all of it and therefore did nothing. In the end, you've got to specialize in one thing and hopefully you do you do the right thing. Right, right. Well, there's no James Bond in uh, athletics. You can't be a specialist in everything, like you said. Amazing, Chris, and uh, that you were able to make that decision at such a young age. Were you pretty torn when you left football? Oh, Lou, yeah. I, was, I, I mean, I, I'd always tried to play football. And, I mean, I was nowhere near as good football was was in athletics yeah but the fun of football was so much greater than athletics and and because athletics is tough you're on your own you know you, you, you've got to do the repetition on your own it hurts mm-hmm. whereas football you can hide in the crowd and you know you get a little bit of a breather and you you score a goal and you're with all the, everybody else and football was intoxicating it was just so alluring and so it was hard to give up. I mean, on a Sunday, sitting in, knowing my friends are playing football, and I was sitting in because I was going to go training. It was tough, but it was the right decision. Yeah, I bet. I bet it was tough. But thank you for sharing that with us, Chris. Chris, are you part of any charity, organization, or foundation that you want to talk about? The, the work that I do with young people, actually, a lot of that work I do for my, cha- for my charity. I've got the charity called the Akabusa Charitable Trust. Okay. We've got, we've got two prongs. We work in Nigeria, the country of my heritage, where my mother and father were born. In Nigeria, we work with young girls, 15 to 25. We set them on the road to, to work. They do an apprenticeship around hairdressing and tailoring. Yeah. And at the end of their 18 months, They'll, they'll get the resources and equipment and a small stipend to set them up. We, we work with 10 girls every year. We also support a mental health charity in Nigeria because in Nigeria, mental health is still misunderstood. Yeah. And they, they still think of 
you know, witch doctors and voodoo and, and evil spirits. And so, so, so people can have a very hard time when they're mentally ill. They can be cast out of their family. They can be abandoned on the roads. So we do some work with mental health, uh, with mental health charity, where people that are, have been abandoned on the roads are collected and taken to a, um, a hospital and they're given proper pharmaceutical drugs and supported in, in getting into their right frame of mind. So that's what I do in Nigeria. And then in the UK, we work with that demographic I've already mentioned, which are the young adults, 16 to 24, making that transition from employment to education. And uh, sorry, from education to employment. And it's such rewarding work. And I'm personally involved with that. I'm on my feet. I do the coaching. I do the mentoring. I utilize my contacts to get the young people um, a two-week experience working in a company internship. Because in the UK, you're 22% more likely to get a job if you've had experience of work than if you have never had experience of a job. So, right. you, know, that, that, you know, a lot of my friends are, are, are really pleased to give you a young person that start. Wow, you're a busy man, Chris. I don't know how you keep up with all the things that you're you've got in your uh, your pipeline there. But that that's amazing, and the amount of work that you're doing for such good causes. Thanks, Lou. I always say to myself, when I finally shuffle off this mortal coil and go to meet my maker, I don't want to go there with my music left inside of me. I want it all to be left here on planet Earth. Well, your music's loud and exciting and (laughs) and captivating. So uh, keep playing. Keep playing, Chris. Chris, share with our fans how they can get in touch with you or find your contributions online, and then we'll say goodbye. Okay, Lou. Well, I've got a website, um, akabusi.com, or you can email me. I don't know if I'm allowed to say my email address, but you can email me, Chris at akabusi.com. Chris, for those of you who can spell phonetically, it's Kilo Romeo India Sierra Sierra at akabusi, alpha, kilo, alpha, bravo, uniform, Sierra, india.com. Come on down, make contact, let's have a wrap, and let's make this world a better place. Keep on smiling. (laughs) That's great. We will have... All of Chris's contact information, his email address, his his website address, um, and then even it will put his uh, post office address and uh, phone number on there so you can call him if you need, right? Bless you. Bless you, Lou. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Lou, I've got to apologize to anybody because I speak at a million miles an hour. So if you didn't hear it the first time, it's a podcast. You can listen to it again. All right. Absolutely. love that. No, we will have everything on riseaboveTheBurn.com for you to check out show notes, the audio, and Chris's contact information. Thank you so much for listening. Chris, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking with you. So inspirational. Let's have you on again. Bless you, Lou. Look forward to it, buddy. You've been great. In the last few episodes, I asked for feedback and received a great response. I especially would like to thank Brian, D'Angelo, and Tim for your in-depth reviews. Keep sending me your ideas and what you would like to hear learn, or how our interviews can inspire you. We also want to know what you're working on. What do you need help with to overcome your obstacles and rise above the burn in either athletics, business, or life? Do you need that extra push to start your own business or how to take your athletic talents to the next level? Tell us your story. I read all the emails, tweets, and Facebook posts, and I really want to hear more from you all. Speaking of help, I need help. I'm looking for ideas on what to name our community. For example, the podcast Entrepreneur on Fire calls their community Fire Nation. What would be the best name for our community? 
send me your ideas at riseabovetheburn.com or I'm also available on Twitter and Facebook. As always, thank you for listening, subscribing, and the five-star reviews on iTunes.